Fish Bites Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Aram Layton, and I am joined by very familiar face, Adam McInturf of 2080 Baseball, one of our favorite scouting sites to, to use one of the best resources, especially after this Rio Muto trade. I've had you on multiple times in the past, and we always go back and forth on prospects, but this might be the most exciting time we've had to go over some prospects. Very Probably the, the best system the Marlins have had since I've had you on. And this is something that slowly has been building up, and now they're making their way from the basement of the league into the teens, especially after this trade. So, Adam, thank you for being on. I can't thank you enough every time. It's always so exciting to go after Go get after it with you and talk about these prospects. No, it's my pleasure. Uh, we know the Marlins are a really fun system. And like you said, this is a really exciting time. You guys just came out with your assessment of the Marlins system. Really, really in-depth. Something we, we've shared on our site and we'll be sure to reshare with this article so fans can check it out and see all the details that you guys spent a lot of time on the Marlins system. You told me off the air that the Marlins system is one of the most familiar for you with just the way things have lined up in the past, which is so great to have you on the podcast as always. And after this Real Muto trade now, it really bolstered their system. I want to get into those three guys that came over, of course, Mm -hmm. the headliner being Sixto Sanchez. Alfaro was a former top 100 prospect. He's still young. He's still putting it together. There's no reason to think that he can't be what a lot of people thought he could be. And of course, you've got Stewart, who is a, a... Fringe top 20 guy in the Philly system, but Mike Hill said himself that they thought he was the best left-handed arm in the Philly system. So I want to start, of course, with Sixto. And we're obviously going to talk about other prospects outside of that deal, but we, we got to start here always. Sixto yeah. is a really, really exciting prospect. Of course, top 30 in probably every single uh, recruiting top 100 you could ever find. Of course, you guys have him at the top of the Marlins uh, prospect list. What can you tell me about Sixto, a guy you, you've seen a little bit of in the Florida State League, a guy that has incredible tools for a 20-year-old and is still learning so much? Yeah, no, Sixto is an exciting one. Um, you know, there's there's a reason that uh, as an A-ball pitcher, he, you know, was the prospect center to deal for arguably the best catcher in baseball last year in JT Real Muto. Um, like you said, he's moved into the number one spot in this system for us, and he's a big part of why the Marlins uh, moved up into the, you know, probably around that mid-teens level in the organizational rankings. Um, he's a potential frontline guy, Sixto Sanchez. It's a, it's a mid to high 90s fastball, and what really stands out about him is for a kid his age, uh, he's not that raw with his strike throwing um, and certainly with his command. I think his command will continue to sharpen within the zone but it's pretty advanced, and especially for a power arm that's his age, it's very advanced. That fastball is backed up by swing and miss off-speed stuff, both uh, a sharp curveball and a changeup, and you add that up, and that's a guy with numerous misbat weapons with the uh, control to start, and that's a, maybe a frontline guy. So we, we have him as a roll 60. There aren't many arms in the minors you put that on. I, I think there is some risk that goes along with that ceiling, uh, just given the fact that he is lower in the minors still. Um, he's not the tallest guy at six feet, despite he's got a pretty durable build, so there's a little bit less concern there. But if there's one question mark going into 2019 for this guy, I think it's just you know general durability in his injury history. Um, like I said, he's not the tallest, and he got shut down early last year. Didn't appear in the fall lead because uh, of a late scratch with injury. 
So that's really the only thing. But presuming he's good to go, um, like you said, this is one of the better pitching prospects in baseball and top 30 or 40 guy um, on everyone's list. The crazy thing about Sixto is he's only 20 years old. He he's He's still a child pretty much. He's basically would be a guy that just came out of high school in your history and guys that you've seen like that with a six toe type of frame. And at that age, have you seen guys put on some weight, get a lot bigger and kind of mitigate that health risk that some people have with his elbow? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think he's shorter, but like I said, he's got a pretty muscular build and I think that's only going to continue to fill out sometimes with durability. I think it's more your width and not your height. Uh, or how much effort that requires you to generate or how how much torque and how much effort you have to put in to generate velocity sometimes because of your physical size. And he has the strength to do it pretty easily, and that's where the command comes from. Um, you know, I, I'm not that concerned about him not being that tall. I mean, I, I think that you look across the league and there's a litany of shorter right-handed starters with power stuff uh that are you know front of the rotation type guys and that's that's kind of where we see him or at least that's where the stuff kind of adds up for what his ceiling is and that's the thing that surprised me is that right after the trade jeff Passan, of course quick to criticize the marlins a little bit he questioned the move a little bit citing that short right-handed pitchers historically don't do well in the major leagues and i understand that if this was the early 2000s maybe but you just mentioned there's guys with his frame that are successful right now with power stuff. You guys have him as a two or three type of starter, but also have his risk at extreme. Can you tell me a little bit why you think his risk is extreme and what you think, what went into that kind of label for him? Yeah, and I think that extreme risk label, something in our grading system, risk is always relative to the ceiling grade. So I think that if you had seen Sixto, let's say if we had put a 50 on him, I think there's a much higher chance of him being a 50 than a 60. I mean, we see him being a 60. I'm just saying in, in any event, it's probably easier to be a roll 50 type guy than better than that. And so the risk might be lower. But relative to that ceiling, uh, that ceiling risk kind of com combo is in the range where we have other players on the 125 that we see similar to him. So I think it's just a mechanism um, to probably note some of those aspects, things like him being lower in the minors, the injury history. And, you know, like you said, he is a shorter righty. But I think my my contest to what I, – I, I didn't see that Bassan said that, but um, I think my contest to it would be just that he is a power stuff guy. Like th this really isn't like a pitch to contact, you know, knows how to pitch, change speeds, three or four average pitches type of guy. I think with that palette of stuff, you probably do typically want a bigger bodied, you know, more durable guy. But regardless of the body type, the type of stuff that's coming out of his hand is impact. And guys are going to swing and miss and it's going to get major league hitters out. Um, he was untouchable in the Florida State League last year. So, you know, I, I think in general, you do want to keep the size and physicality of the pitcher in mind, but you never want to get caught up in crossing guys off just because of their body type. So I'm I'm not going to back off Sixto because of the talent that we've seen from him, regardless of his size. I mean, I'm not comparing him necessarily to Luis Severino one for one, but Severino is an example of a guy that's not the biggest in the world, but you know, nobody would disagree that he's a front of the rotation type guy and an anchor. And we see Sixto, despite not being very tall, having that same type of upside. And something that possibly might sell a lot of people on Sixto, which I think 
mitigates the risk a little bit. But I think it's important going back actually that you mentioned that there's a risk label is relative to the ceiling. I think that's something that a lot of people might not understand that you're not saying that Sixto's risk in general is extreme. You're saying that his risk is extreme to reach that the high ceiling that you labeled him to potentially be able to reach. So that's something that I think is important for fans to note when they look at the list. But going back, Sixto's control is surprisingly way ahead of most power pitchers his age. I think he only has about a 6% walk rate. Is that something that you think will continue to, to stay that way as he goes through you know, each level, even if his stuff becomes more hard to control and higher velocity? Or is that something that you, you think might end up going back and forth a little bit and control could eventually be an issue? No, I I think what's so enthusing about, I mean, really what sets Sitchdo apart in my mind from other, like there are other guys in the minors that are still very good pitching prospects, by the way. There are other guys in the minors with this same type of, you know, age frame stuff profile that don't have his control. And I think what separates him from those types of guys that show high ceilings and good stuff, but the control, you know, is still a question mark. And that's pretty common for guys with power stuff that are 19, 20, 21 years old. Um, it, it is that walk rate, like you mentioned. And the fact that he was in the Florida State League, and I know it's a pitcher-friendly league, but he's playing against guys that are two and three years older, and he's dominating. And he's dominating uh, efficiently, and he's not putting guys on via the walk. Uh, I think you pair that with the amount of swings and misses that his stuff gets, and that's a pretty special combination. Like, end of the day... The better starting pitchers in baseball, they generally strike guys out and don't walk a lot of hitters. And it sounds simple, but uh, <laughs> but that's that's what they do. And like I said, so I, I I think it's that control and walk prevention paired with the stuff that made Sitchto uh, so exciting and puts him into that top 30, 40 prospect range of the game. And I want to move on to the next guy. Obviously, the guy that's going to replace Real Muto behind the plate, Jorge Alfaro, excuse me. Also a guy with with extreme power, but also a big swing and miss problem. He was a former top 100 prospect and nearly across the board. What have you seen from him developing through the minor leagues now? He's played about a season and a half in the bigs. What have you seen so far? And is there something you think he can build on the game that he's shown so far? Obviously, he's a defense first guy, and that's what brings his floor pretty high. But do you think he could ever put it together at the dish? And if he can, yeah, what I, I absolutely think he can. This is a player I've been pretty familiar with him going back a couple of years. He was in the Rangers system, and then he came over uh, to Philly in the Cole Hamels deal. And I guess has a penchant for being moved for high-profile players because now, now here he is in the real Muto trade. But I think Miami did really well to net a young team-controllable catcher to replace real Muto. I mean, they they didn't really have a catch. For as much as I like Will Banfield, they don't really have – another catching prospect ready to step in right away. And they kind of filled that need with Alfaro right here. So um, like you said, he was a top 100 guy and it was on the strength of his cannon throwing arm and power potential at the plate. Um, it's funny that he's kind of morphed into such a defensive specialist. Now his defensive ratings are so good and mostly because of the throwing arm, if I'm not mistaken, I totally buy into his ability to put it together at the plate and figure it out at least enough to provide 15 to 20 home runs a year, which for a catcher, if you're playing well on defense, that's a really valuable piece. Um, you know, I'll kind of end it with this on him before I turn it back over to you. I think in order to do that though, he's just, you know, it's pretty clear. He's just going to have to alter parts of his approach. He has the raw power and he's shown flashes of the power, 
but he's striking out, you know, 30, 35% of the time. And that's going to have to cut down to at least even the mid 20s for him to really start getting the power uh, to become an impactful major league offensive piece. So you said that you've liked him all the way through and even to now. I mean, he still hit 262 last year in 108 games, despite striking out 138 times. So you figure he puts the bat on the ball at least a little bit more, and the batting average will come. He still hit 10 home runs in 100 games, and I think that's something that will keep developing, like you said. But the 18 walks to 138 strikeouts is a little terrifying. But that's something that he could probably refine as as he – you know, continues to get his at-bats. At the end of the day, he's only gotten 460 MLB at-bats. So that's a guy that I'm also excited to see what he can do. And that's the Marlins are a perfect situation for him where kind of like Brinson last year, obviously assuming he's going to do a lot better than Brinson did, he can kind of just struggle through the season. And with a team that's rebuilding, it's it, there's there's no pressure to figure it out like there was on the Phillies this past season where they were trying to make a playoff push until the wheels totally fell off. So I'm excited to see what happens with that guy. And, of course, I want to go into the final piece with Stewart, left-handed pitcher, obviously kind of an afterthought in this deal, but not for the Marlins. They they were pretty – pretty they, they made it a priority for the third piece to matter in this deal. And that was something that was very clear as reports were coming out that the Marlins and the Phillies were hung up on the third piece. People thought it would be a little bit bigger of a third piece, maybe a Moniac type of guy. One of those, you know, top 15 type of players in the Philly system. They end up going for Stewart, who has had some success, another really young guy, but had a really good season last year. What do you know about him and what can you kind of tell fans about this guy? Because he seemed to kind of be the afterthought in this deal and the Marlins are pretty excited about it. Yeah. And I think they should be. Um, Stewart didn't crack the ranked portion of our updated Marlins list. He didn't make the top 15, but that doesn't mean. Uh, that he's not a prospect or not a guy to keep an eye on. I just think that actually that's a reflection of the increased depth in Miami's system after some of these trades and last year's draft. But uh, Will Stewart's a guy, I I was pleasantly surprised to see him in this deal. Like you said, I think Miami was absolutely right uh, to prioritize the third piece in a return for a guy of Real Muto's caliber. Um Stewart was a low A South Atlantic lead all-star last year. I saw him make a couple starts. Uh, didn't know much about him going into the year. He was a later round pick. I want to say a couple years ago out of an Alabama high school in the, in the twenties, in the round twenties. Mm-hmm. Um, he's kind of a, he, he's, he's kind of a soft tosser. Like it's, it's, it's a high eighties to low nineties fastball, but he really knows how to pitch and get guys out. It's deception based. It's pitchability based. Um, his best off speed pitch is a changeup that he sells really well and can get swings over the top, even though his fastball isn't coming in, you know, 95-plus. Um, he's got kind of a funky low arm slot and throws a lot of strikes. I think it's the type of guy where there's there's a little bit of risk. I I mean, we, we see for him the max ceiling being kind of a back-of-the-rotation type starter. He doesn't have the firmest stuff in the world, like I said, so he, he's, you know, I think the risk there is just, is he going to be able to turn major league lineups over? and take the ball every fifth day. But there's a chance that he does. Um, He'll just kind of have to prove it, I think, as he climbs the ladder and starts facing better competition at the double-A, maybe triple-A level. Um, But there's there's a lot to be excited about here. This is a potential major league rotation piece. And if not, I think he's a lefty that you can put in a variety of bullpen roles and he can get guys out 
so it's it's a kid that got a chance to pitch in the big leagues um, and you know play for team controllable salaries and to get that in the third piece, I think that's something to be excited about. And do you think another guy got asked the question? Of course, another twenty year old. I'm not saying he's going to come out here throwing 96 in a couple years, but he's also a lefty. Lefties tend to develop a little bit later than a lot of other guys, like we saw with Andrew Miller back in the day with the Marlins developed too late for them. But he's not, he's a totally different situation. But from what I've seen in, in, in the past, lefties tend to develop a little later. Is he a guy that you think could develop into a little bit different of a type of arm instead of a ground ball guy, soft contact? that could end up striking out more than just 90 guys in 113 innings. You know, if his body, for me, how much a guy's stuff is going to change as he fills out, as he matures, really depends on the body type and the athleticism. If Will Stewart built like maybe like a Trevor Rogers, right? Like that, you know, six foot six, 190 pound, 200 pound lanky frame. Uh, I think there is probably room to project strength gains. I think he's he's kind of a smaller body guy. He's small and lean. So personally, I I don't mean to correct you. Just in my opinion, uh, I don't really see his game turning into a hard throwing one. I, I I always see him kind of being a sum of the parts guy that knows how to get guys out. But I think he's just really well situated to do that. Um, like I said, the changeup's really good. His ability to throw his off speed pitches for strikes for a young pitcher is very impressive, and knows how to hide the fastball. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll see, like, he's not your traditional six foot four pitching prospect throwing 95, but, um, save for that, I, I still think he's got some of the other qualities that help get outs and, you know, so we'll, they'll, they'll, they'll see what they have in Will Stewart. Absolutely. And he's a guy that had a really good year, like I said before last year, but to get into the exact numbers, he actually was eight and one. Had a 2.06 ERA, had two complete game shutouts, which is not something you see a lot, especially in the minor leagues, and only gave up 90 hits in 113 and two-thirds innings. So it's a guy that yeah. has shown the pitchability. It's just, like you said, whether he'll continue to be able to get these guys out as the hitters get better without that elite stuff. And that's something that... He's so polished. He kind of pitched like a college pitcher in the South Atlantic League last year. I don't mean to jump in, but yeah, you know, you, you, just, you just read his numbers out. He was, he started the South Atlantic League All-Star game for the North team. He was the North Division starter. Um, you know, so he, his polish, it really says more about his polish that at his age, he went out and dominated that league in the way that you see like a 23 year old arm sometimes doing. And, you know, I, I don't know if he's going to miss bats to the same degree that he did statistically last year as he climbs the ladder. I think he'll need to probably pitch to more contact with his stuff being where it is. But that's not to say that he can't be successful and gets, get outs. And I think the pitch ability is there to do that. So, so that's, kind of, that's kind of what we stand on him. So in summary, kind of from, from what it sounds like, you, you think the Marlins did a good job on this deal, right? You think the Marlins came away with oh, I do. A, about what they could have possibly gotten for Rio Muto? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are different types of packages. I think Alfaro's presence in this deal, the fact that it was not a straight prospect deal, probably is why you didn't see it being like a four prospect deal with two of them being top 100 type guys. Like maybe you saw like what the Cubs gave up for Jose Quintana because there was not a major league piece in that deal. The prospect return needed to be higher. I think for a guy like Real Muto, because you're getting a valuable young major league ready right now piece in Alfaro. And that's really valuable catcher. And then you are getting, you know, one of the better pitching prospects in baseball. I think because the deal was situated that way. Yeah. I, I think this was a pretty good return. I like Stewart as a third piece. 
And Miami's been more aggressive on the international market. Let's not forget that they traded for some uh, international pool money. So that, that might be something that they can get flexible with down the road. Well, of course, you know, they depleted their money when they went after Victor Victor Mesa. So it's, it's an important thing to add. Like you just said, they get a quarter of a million dollars in international money. They can go ahead and potentially trade one of those veterans that they have, whether it's Starling Castro, Dan Straley, for some more international money, as we saw them do with Kyle Baraclaw, which, which ended up being the difference maker to get the Mesas. They got a million in international money for Baraclaw. So speaking of Mesa... Of course, I got to get into him. He's probably the most polarizing player we've seen for the Marlins in all of these prospect lists. You guys had him at, you guys have him at actually number five, which is about in the middle of everything we've seen so far. Um, like you said, off the air with me, it's a guy that you, you guys, no one has seen. It's, it's, it's not really whether some people have seen him, some people haven't seen as much of him. Really, nobody has seen him play baseball since. About 2017, 2016, I don't remember when when that World Baseball Classic was that he did well. And obviously, it's hard to make an assessment on a guy that you have not seen play much. But based on what you know, and of, of course, with what you've seen and how polarizing he can be, where do you stand on Mesa in, in relation to what you've seen from your peers in the prospect analysis world? Yeah, uh, no, I, I I think, like you said, you kind of hit the nail on the head. Um, he's a tough one to put into a bin. I think in actually, it, it's it's a little bit different because Kikuchi is more of a known entity. But just these guys that are entering after playing Warren uh, fashionably overseas, they, they could be tough kind of place on these lists. So he finished fifth for us. I think um, part of the reason why that is, is uh, he's more of a speed and table-setting guy. And I think we felt that there were some hit tool guys like Isan Diaz that were closer or guys that had a little bit more potential impact with the power ahead of him on the positional side. But, I mean, he still – he grades pretty well, and we see him as a guy that can move to the major leagues fairly quickly and be a speedy top-of-the-lineup center fielder. I think that's what the Marlins are hoping for, too. You mentioned Isan Diaz, a guy you have one, one ahead of him. Obviously – Diaz has shown the ability to get on base. He's shown the good hit tool, has the good glove. If Victor Mesa was able to show that kind of, you know, show the, the good defense in the outfield, something that a lot of people are saying should carry him up the ranks pretty quickly, just the fact that he is so good defensively. If he's able to... Yeah, I, I think it's worth... Yeah, sorry, sorry. Go, interject go anytime, because I was going to say, if he shows the glove and even hits just decently, you know, something that the Marlins are hoping... Brinson can do this coming year with his elite glove in the outfield. How quick do you think he'll shoot up the rankings across the board? I think very fast. I think it's worth mentioning that once we do get a look at this guy, if he really comes out and forms, um, then you're going to see Mesa moving way up uh, on mid-season lists and certainly maybe by the end of next year. I mean, I, I think if, you, if, if he shows he's ready, he might crack the lineup um, in some capacity at some point in 2019. So I think that it's just a position where we haven't seen him play and he'll kind of set his own course. And I think uh, that's kind of how we graded him. And if he shows kind of what you said, then we'll be the first ones to move him up. And I think it's worth mentioning that we could be a little bit low on right now just because of this unknown factor. And we t- we've been talking about height a lot in this podcast. I mean, Victor's listed, Victor Victor's listed at five foot nine, one sixty five. 165. Uh, it's obviously not very big. 
uh, do you think as an outfielder, is that something that matters much? I mean, obviously he's never going to be a power guy, but will he be able to to carry his weight in an outfield position? Yeah, I mean, look, like like you said, he's he's a glove led guy. Um, he plays a good center field, and he's got the speed, frankly, to be an asset in that big outfield in Marlins Park. So I think that's that's certainly a part of his value, and that's a role that they envision him playing. And one last thing on Mesa, you mentioned he does have that glove that'll lead him. And you mentioned that he could end up getting into the big leagues this year. Is that something that would make sense for the Marlins, you think, to get his clock going? I mean, he is probably one of the oldest prospects you'll see. He'll be 23 by the time the season starts. Is that something that the Marlins you think will actually do? Obviously, you're you're not in the front office, but would that make sense based on what you've experienced in the past with prospects in this situation? Obviously, he'd be a big pull for the Marlins and fans and to have fans come out to the game and see him. But other than that, would it make sense to start his clock from what you've seen in the past with prospects like this? I think it just depends on if he shows he's ready. You mentioned Lewis Brinson earlier. Um, I'm sure that plays a role too. You know, there there's plenty of other young players they're trying to work into this outfield mix. Uh, but they they know that best. I mean, I, I think this is a guy, he was a priority for them to sign. And if he shows he's ready and they feel he's ready, then he's going to get an opportunity. And the one other outfield prospect I really want to talk about here is, is Monty Harrison. Obviously, another guy that's very polarizing was – in almost every top 100 list until he struck out more than any player in professional baseball last year and then went to the Arizona Fall League, refined his approach, as you've noted in in your uh, write-up of the Marlins and of Harrison, cut that massive, the word you used was disruptive, leg kick out of his approach, which is something a lot of people were hoping he would do for a while because it was just clearly throwing off his timing, just too violent of a swing. He cuts it down. He hits really well in the Arizona Fall League, barely strikes out, strikes out maybe a handful of times. But the power was sapped a little bit. Is that something that you would be worried about with a guy like Harrison? I mean, he's a physical specimen. He's 6'3", 220. The power will come back, right? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I was about to say two things are true about the Fall League. Guys are tired at the end of the year, and the parks are – Quite large. I mean, these are these spring training ballparks out there in the Cactus League are pretty big. Um, he showed a lot of development, shortening the swing, taking that leg kick out, and you know, with the raw power, size, strength, physicality that he has, yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, you you want him just thinking contact because he does not have to do a lot of large, disruptive, big muscle movements to generate power. He's got the bat speed. He's got the size. Um, so for us, we were very enthused to see him show some aptitude and make a mechanical change at the plate and then see it pay off immediately in his contact. And we were talking about guys that could sneak their way into the top 100. He fell out. He has, if he has a good couple months, keeps up where he was going, like you said, with those tweaks and shows the power the first couple months in the minor leagues. Is that a guy you think that will sneak his way right back into the top 100 and potentially be a call up this year? Well, we, we have him. We have from, from this system, we have Harrison in our top. You know, we, it hasn't come out yet, but we have Harrison penciled into the top 125 range. So I don't think he's dropped out of that for us. Um, certainly, I think with him, I think that because of guys we're mentioning, Mesa, certainly Brinson, um, and other young outfield depth options they have too, there's no reason to rush Monty. 
But I think that they look at him as a guy with the athleticism and upside to one day, you know, fill a prominent role in that lineup. I'm not really sure where it's going to be. Um, because I think Lewis Brinson could still be quite a valuable big leader despite some of his ups and downs at the plate last year. But, um, you know, Monty's still on the 125 for us, but there's no need to push him, in my opinion. I'm, I'm planning to see him probably either very earliest late this season or probably 2020. Well, like you said, there's no rush, especially a guy that's finally refining his approach and gaining some confidence in, uh, in his approach and not striking out as much. But an outfield eventually of – Lewis Brinson, Victor Victor Mesa, and Monty Harrison in two years. Is that an outfield you think that could be above average in the MLB? Uh, yeah, I mean, you just put the names out there. We, we know what the ceiling is for these guys. So I think this is going to be the whole youth movement we're going to see in Miami, and we'll see how it goes over the next two, three, four years. But it's, it's exciting to think about what these players could be and then lining up names like those in the outfield, um, you know, exciting time for the organization for sure and that's that's the crazy thing is i'm starting to look at this prospect list and you're slowly seeing how these guys could pencil in in the next couple years into the lineup of course now you go to Ezen diaz who's the number four prospect and the marlins have no other real second base prospect that's a threat to you know crack the starting lineup in the next few months or at least by the end of this year you have an eta on diaz of 2019, which makes sense. I mean, he reached AAA last year. Struggled a little bit, but it was only a cup of coffee up there. That's another guy that shows to, that projects to be the future of second base for the Marlins. What do you like about Diaz? Of course, he's shown an incredible ability to get on base, a solid glove. We talked about that briefly before going into Mesa. Is he a guy that is almost? I wouldn't. I, of course, there's no sure things with prospects in baseball. But is is his floor almost so high that you can almost comfortably say he will be playing in the big leagues in the next year or so? I think he's about there. Yeah. I mean, uh, to me, the thing that makes him such a higher floor guy, despite being a second baseman, is that field of hit that you mentioned. And I think um, that that's where a lot of scouts and a lot of large publications other than ours uh, kind of stand on him. Um, he's moved over from shortstop, I think, now. You know, in, in years past, he played a little bit of both, but he's a full-time second baseman now. But I think he's, a, you know, got an above-average love there. And when you couple that with the on-base ability, I think you're looking to chance for, a, you know, hopefully a two- to three-win player at peak, and that's what they're hoping he can be. And, of course, we've got to talk about Sandy Alcantara. He's another guy we've talked about a bunch of times, but I wanted to talk to talk to you about him now that he was in the big leagues had an injury, went down, came back, and looked like a different guy. I thought he looked phenomenal at the end of the season when he came oh, back. He really did. Yeah, because yeah. I had, we had had we had discussed, and we were on the same page with this one that his first breath of breath of fresh air in the big leagues, he looked a little bit like a Jose Urania, where high velocity, good stuff, but he couldn't strike guys out, and it was almost puzzling. And then he he goes down, he sorts things out, works on the control. And he comes back up and he's striking guys out at the rate that most expect him to put up. What did you see? What was the difference for him between those two, those two instances in the big leagues? I think you probably have to look a little bit further into the numbers for that because I only watch so many big league appearances for some of these guys because I'm in the minor leagues so frequently. 
But uh, watching video of Alcantara at the end of the year, you're right that when he came up, he was a totally different guy. And the stuff, uh, both breaking, both off-speed pitches were getting swings and misses. His fastball was playing at the top of the zone the way that we thought that it could. I think maybe the development of his secondaries might have allowed the fastball to keep guys a little bit more honest. I think that's something that we talked about on a previous podcast in the middle of last year. Um, but the way he threw, we finished pretty high on him. I mean, I think he's going to be, he's just barely prospect eligible still. I think because of the ceiling that we see him having and the proximity he has as a guy that's going to step into a major league role right away next year, we see him as someone in the top 125 mix. Um, and I see him as a starter. He's still, you know, people still say there's some, uh, differing opinions on whether he's going to move to the pen or not, but. I see three pitches, and I give him a chance to work as a starter. And if the end of last year is any indication, I think that's what the Marlins want to do with him too, given what he showed. That's the thing I really like to talk about because the, the probably the most uncertain part of the Marlins' future is that rotation. My big criticism on, criticism on them was that they lacked that projectable front end talent. But now you have Sixto. You guys label label Sandy as an above average starter possibly a number three guy. Is he one of those guys that you think if he puts that elite stuff together that he could end up maybe sneaking into that number two type of guy and exceeding your expectations a little bit? He could. I mean, you're not gonna, you, you don't want to bet against guys with this type of velocity and ability to induce swings and misses on numerous off-speed pitches. So I don't want to say no, but, uh, you know, to us, I just think the trajectory he's been on I think his ceiling in the rotation is a mid-rotation guy with power stuff. And I want to talk about the complete opposite type of guys now in the system. So we got Nick Neidert and Zach Gallen. We'll start with Neidert. He is another guy, kind of a more, a more advanced, further along version of Will Stewart, like we were talking about. A guy that people kept saying, okay, like he's getting guys out at, at, at this level, but let's see if he can do it at the next level. And then he did it. And then he's like, how, how about if he does it at the next level? And then he did it again. So he, he's shown that he can get guys out at almost every level with a fastball that barely touches the mid-90s. Uh, a lot of the time he was sitting in the low 90s. And that's kind of where, like you mentioned in your write-up, he actually prefers to sit in the low 90s rather than run it up and, and kind of just spot up. It's worked for him yeah. so far. Is yeah. that a guy that you think can take that low 90s stuff and have some success in the bigs. We absolutely do. I mean, I think that you mentioned two guys that we have fairly high on this list. I think we're a little bit higher on Gallon maybe than some. Neidert, I think everyone's right about in step with each other on. I mean, I think the season he had last year and the pitchability he showed is impressive. I think that the difference between Neidert and Will Stewart, who you mentioned leading up to him, is, you know, Niners got the ability to get to that 95-96. He'll throw a four-seat fastball that gets there. To me, it shows just kind of uh, impressive maturity and feel the pitch that he understands that he's more effective, not just relying on that four-seam fastball, but working down in the low 90s with movement and switching to a two-seam grip. Um, his changeup is what uh, our evaluators at Psalm last year felt strongly was the better of his two off-speed pitches. And this type of profile, kind of, uh, you know, average fastball, good changeup, knows how to change speeds and mix pitches, throw strikes, that generally is a, you know, four or five type ceiling. But, but, you know, 
like like you mentioned, if this guy really breaks out in the absolute best case scenario, sometimes this can fit as a mid-rotation starter. So what I like about Nidert quickly is just that he's such a different type of pitcher than some harder-throwing, risk-reward type prospects the Marlins have, like Sandy Alcantara or uh, Edward Cabrera. Jordan Holloway, you know, they're, they're ripe with hard throwers with control being a question, but I think neither balances that out just for the type of pitcher that he is. What separates Nidert from Gallon here? The type similar types of pitchers, obviously Nidert had a little bit more success. You have them right butted up against each other as number six and seven on the, in the guys on the horizon. What, what's the difference between the two how do you separate them? Because I feel like a lot of people look at them as two very similar type of pitching prospects. I think they are similar pitching prospects. Nidert, I would say a little bit higher ceiling, maybe a little bit better chance to pop up and surprise you as that number three, four type guy. Um, and Gallon just closer. I mean, Gallon's a little a year older, uh, pitched a level higher last year, and you could probably argue could have gotten a cup of coffee in the big leagues if they wanted him to. So I, I think that's that's really the separator for us is just kind of their ceiling and proximity. But you kind of hit the nail on the head. Not that much difference between these guys and the way they go about their business. And that's part of the reason why you saw him rank so close on this list. Gallon, obviously, like you said, he was closer, reached AAA, and actually pitched pretty well. You mentioned he had a pretty good – he thrived, I guess, actually said in there. I think he did too in, in his AAA – experience last year with 25 starts, 3.65 ERA in the Pacific Coast League. What can you say about the Pacific Coast League too? Is is that a, a tougher league to pitch in? Was Gallon being challenged actively in, in comparison to some other leagues that he could have been in? For, is that 3.65 ERA in that league something that's a little bit harder to carry or or what's kind of the what's the idea of, in that league for a pitcher? Yeah, there are a lot of different parts just because it's a triple A league is dispersed, you know, all, all over the country. So unlike maybe the California league where you have all the teams in that state, the atmospheric conditions for each stadium vary a little bit more, but absolutely there, there's some big time hitters parks out West in the PCL. So, uh, the way that he managed contact and the way that Gallon kept his ERA down is impressive. I mean, he, uh, he showed a little bit more than I was expecting from him last year. And I saw him in college and I thought, you know, he was maybe tops a swingman type, maybe a lower end number five starter, but probably a long reliever, a type that you pitch in a lot of lower leverage roles. And he's upped his game as 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 a pro. I mean, he's throwing harder without sacrificing command. And he's coming off his best season as a pro, in my opinion, last year. And hopefully uh, the Marlins hope he rides that to compete for a rotation role down the road. Absolutely, and I know that's something the Marlins are absolutely hoping for. He he could potentially be competing for a rotation spot this coming year. I think there's about seven or eight guys that could be competing for a rotation spot. So it's actually a really good thing for this young team to have some competition going into the spring. I want to talk about some fringe guys now, too. Some guys that could potentially break out. You have Brian Miller as one of the notable guys on your list. He's a speedster. Another guy that's kind of surprised. A lot of people, he, he was drafted relatively high, but lacked that power, questionable hit tool until he got to, to the minor leagues, started to work his way up and started to hit for a really good average. And of course, he swipes bags as good as anybody in pro ball. Is Brian Miller a type of guy that, of course, he projects as a role player right now that you think could break out into a potential starter's role if everything works out? 
Yeah, I, I don't think it's unreasonable. If you love a Brian Miller type, you can maybe see him as a low-end regular if you feel he stays in center field. But like like you said, the, the calling cards with him, very polished hit tool, um, good defender that can move around the outfield, and a lot of speed. And that shows up defensively and on the bases. He can do a lot of things, and that's why a lot of people at the very least pencil him in as a fourth outfielder. And a guy I know personally you're very high on, just based on all the conversations I've had with you, Edward Cabrera, very young, another 20-year-old guy, only pitched in single-A Greensboro last year. Of course, up and down, as any young guy is, pretty sporadic. The strikeout numbers weren't quite quite there for a guy that runs the fastball up as high as he does and has the stuff that he does. I know you love Edward Cabrera. Can you tell me why you love Edward Cabrera and why you think he could potentially catapult into the top of the Marlins prospect list? Yeah, if you know, I think he's a guy, if we're just looking at guys a chance to finish in that top prospect range by the time they graduate, we mentioned Braxton Garrett off the air. Edward Cabrera is another one you mentioned. And yeah, we're, we're pretty high on him. Um, we kind of, in his breakout year, I think we were able to see him earlier than some just we had a feed around in south atlantic league and that's kind of really where he showed a lot of his uh his best stuff so uh cabrera i mean he's as young it's it's worth noting he'd be a college junior if he were draft eligible this year and his fastball with the life he showed on a 6-4 frame up in the high 90s and the swing ms breaking ball that's the foundation of a you know number three number four starter and there's a long way to go with him. I mean, he's the epitome of a extreme risk, low minors pitcher. Because this profile, there's so much variance in how it goes. But he has a lot of ingredients, and I think that there is some major league value for this guy. We're excited to see what uh, 2019 has in store for him. You mentioned Braxton Garrett. Obviously, he missed the entire season with Tommy John surgery right after the draft last year. So we haven't seen much of him. He was a first-round pick. Of course, the Marlins are very high on him. We're excited to see what he can offer. Is he a guy that if if he comes out and, and looks really good first couple months of the season, we're talking about guys that might be able to crack that top prospect list. Do you think he could sneak his way in there if he shows the pitchability for a young lefty at his age? Yeah, I do. And I I wouldn't be surprised if some people put me put him in that top maybe top 150, top 200 range right now. I, I think if we built our list out to 200, he might rank there for us as well. It's really just a matter of health with him. I mean, as the seventh overall pick in 2016, he was on that trajectory and pitched very well in full season ball before going down. So if he just can prove he's healthy and show similar stuff, uh, you know, he was throwing an instructs. I saw him during instructs. His arm was working free and easy and presuming that everything's back to where it was. Yeah, I think Braxton Garrett's maybe the most likely guy uh, that we've talked about so far to take a jump into that part of the list, just based on what he showed before the injury. Other guy that I think could be pretty, pretty probable to sneak his way in there and has showed an ability to pitch another first round high school left-handed arm that the Marlins took, I believe the year after Trevor Rogers, he, he got knocked around a decent amount in the minor leagues last year, but he also flashed, the ability to strike guys out. I mean, he had a couple a couple starts where he struck out 10, 12 guys, which you don't do by accident. Is that a guy that you also think if he can put it together, refine his stuff a little bit, could sneak his way into the top of the 
Marlins prospect list and eventually turn into a, a guy the Marlins could be excited about when they saw what and see what they saw in him when they picked him in the first round back in 2017. Yeah, Rodgers has shown flashes of that, and I think that you you touched on it. I mean, it's six foot six, left handed frame, um, throwing in the mid 90s like he does. I think for me, when I saw him last year, the question was what type of breaking ball was he going to have that night? Because there were some nights where he showed a true slider with depth. And on the nights where he had a breaking ball working and was working with three pitches, the changeup being a little bit ahead of his breaking ball, actually, uh, for me anyway, that's really when he had a lot of success. And then there were nights where he didn't really have that breaking pitch at all. Um, and guys were able to sit on his fastball and he'd struggle. So uh he, he was a little bit old for his high school class, but there's still time. I mean, it's not like he's an old man. He's still in his early 20s. Um, and, you know, sometimes guys with this height, they can take a little bit longer to develop. So we'll see what we got with Trevor Rogers. But whether it's Edward Cabrera, Trevor Rogers, I've mentioned a few times, uh, Jordan Holloway. There, there are a lot of high ceiling arms and hard throwing arms in this system. And, and you just, I'd probably throw Jorge Guzman on there too. You don't really know which way it's going to break, rotation versus bullpen, but the stuff is there to be an impactful big lead piece, and it's it's good to have these guys in a certain quantity because even though it's a high-variance demographic, if some guys go by the wayside, you still have enough to get some value out of these guys. Absolutely, and one last guy I really want to talk to you about because I just thought about him as you were talking about some of those guys there. I had a flashback to podcasts we had probably almost a year ago maybe six to eight months ago, actually, but we talked about Pablo Lopez, but like right before he was coming up when he was really hot in the minor leagues. And I was asking you, I'm like, what do you think of this Lopez guy? You think he can actually do anything in the big leagues? Is he actually going to make it all the way up? Or is he a guy that's just a flash in the pan in the minor leagues? And we talked about, and you said he's a guy that you thought could end up making it up there. He, he make, he gets up to the big leagues. Obviously he ends up getting hurt, but he showed an ability to get big league hitters out. And he had some really, really good starts. And he showed that velocity up to the mid and high 90s at times. He's coming back from injury, of course, but assuming he's totally healthy and all right, is he a guy that you think could actually be a major league arm, a consistent major league arm from what you saw in the minor leagues and leading in? I know you don't, you said you don't watch a lot of big league ball, but a guy that showed he was able to get big league bats out too. Is that something that's sustainable for him? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I think the performance you saw was for real. And he's kind of a guy like Nieder, really. He's, he's a little bit bigger, but uh, a guy that knows how to pitch, a guy that throws strikes and has a changeup as his primary off-speed pitch, um, or at least a, a prominent part of his arsenal. I think that's, that's a similar, similar number four starter profile. And Pablo Lopez is another arm that could fit that type of role for them in the future. So going in after this trade, you said that you were confident that this Marlins trade with Rio Muto would put them in the top 15. Are you still feeling that confident with your rankings coming out? Your rankings are coming out pretty soon. Something that we're definitely going to make sure to mention is something that we're all really excited about. But going into that, is that something that you think the Marlins are really in that top half of the major leagues finally in terms of their prospects? Yeah, I, 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 I do. And I, I think maybe it's because we fall on the higher end on some of these, uh, risk reward type of guys because we like the ceiling they have and we're buying on the upside a little bit. But certainly after they've added Sixto Sanchez, um, to the top of the list, I think there's star power at the top. 
there's some close to ready pieces uh, in Alcantara and some others that are going to graduate fairly soon. And then there's a pretty good amount in the low minors between some international guys, um, guys from trades and players they selected in last year's draft. I think it was a strong high upside draft class. Yeah, I think the Marlins have definitely pushed their way out of the 21 to 30 range anyway. And I think they're definitely in that 11 to 20 range. We'll, we'll, we'll see if they break, you know, 11 to 15. We, we're, we're about a third of the way through our organizational list. So we haven't lined up all of the clubs yet, one through 30. But when we do release that, uh, I expect Miami to be middle of the pack, but with the arrow definitely going up, given all the new players in the system. And my big question for you, kind of my final question here too, is obviously you have your top 125 coming out. Can you give any little uh, little teaser to how many Marlins guys you think might be on that list? I won't hold it against you if it's not true. All right, as long as I hold it, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll say let's 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 say three to four. I think right right now we we have three oh. for sure and maybe four sneak in there. So we'll see. Well, that's pretty exciting. I, I'd like to know who that fourth guy is. So that's something Marlins fans would like to see too because I know some fans have gotten frustrated with some of the lists. I know you guys are higher on some of these guys than some other services. So it's fan graphs. They've, they've ranked some guys higher than most other services in the Marl- that the Marlins have. So three to four guys, something Marlins fans should be very excited about and something – we're really excited to see those rankings come out. Obviously, we will be letting that info loose whenever whenever it comes about. And actually, I know I just said I was going to ask you the last question, but I do have one more question for you. Based on your experience in the big leagues, of course, the Marlins are kind of out of those tradable assets where they're going to get big time, a big-time return on players. So here they are with a middling farm system. Obviously, they have the fourth pick in the upcoming draft. But how do the Marlins really make themselves into – a potential contender in a few years if there's about 14 farm systems better than them and they don't have as much on-field talent as essentially almost every single team in the major leagues right now. Is there is that a reason for concern? Are the Marlins still far away from where they need to be? Or is there somewhere along the way where if they draft right in the next couple of years and things work out that they don't need to worry about having a middling farm system right now? Yeah, I just, you know, I wouldn't say that they have a meddling farm system, just given the nature of it. It's one that is trending up, not trending down. I wouldn't get to, and I don't, I don't really get that caught up in where a farm system ranks in the exact number, just kind of the, the general range. And I think the general range here is good. Um, the, the risk that you mentioned, that being, you know, a team that doesn't have a lot of assets that are producing wins at the major league level right now, and doesn't necessarily have a top five in the game farm system. I think that's a risk that any rebuilding team takes. I mean, I think the answer to some degree is they have to be patient and they have to wait and they have to hope that some of the young players that the plan is to build this nucleus of talent around in years to come just start to matriculate as hope. I think they certainly can, but stressing patience is important. And this is a full-on rebuild. And it's a farm system that's going to keep getting better, like you said, with uh, the fourth overall pick in the draft and also subsequently a lot of money to spend on the international market. So I think you're looking at they're going to do some combination of using those high picks to add to the farm, signing guys like Sergio Romo or those types of veterans to these short-term deals and hoping to flip them at the deadline for you know, some minor league value to add to the system. And otherwise, they're just going to wait. They're, they're going to wait on their horses and – 
ultimately this rebuild is going to come down to how much these young players form a core and how successful they are down the road. And that's, that's an excellent assessment. I hope that's something that a lot of fans can listen to because it's very encouraging. And I think a frustrating thing for a lot of Marlins fans has been that they have that take that you have. They understand the process, but then there's that other half of the fans and the rest of Major League Baseball that seems to really just bash the Marlins for what they're doing here. But I think people like you that understand how this all works and understand the process of minor leaguers matriculating into the bigs, that this is how it has to be done. And it's something that it's nice. It's refreshing to hear someone like you say that they're doing it the right way and that it's slowly progressing and you're seeing it progress before your eyes. Yeah, I, I really think actually, and I'll speak pretty strongly to this. I think the Marlins, you know, I, I hear from people like yourself and fans of the team that they feel kind of picked on by the media and may, maybe they are. And, and if that's true, I think it's just because of the reputation this organization developed in, you know, decade plus past, just of maybe not doing it the right way. And that lost the trust of the fan base. And honestly, I think it lost the trust of the league. Um, this Derek Jeter group, I think they have paid a lot for other people's mistakes. And if people are willing to kind of wipe the slate clean and just judge this organization from that point forward, I think that they'd see that there's been a lot of efforts to do things the right way. And there's a lot to be excited about. So it could be wrong. And I'm certainly, you know, not a Miami resident. Don't follow the market that much. But uh, I think there's been a lot of positives. And if they're not getting credit for those positives, it's just, just the Marlins as an organization developed a reputation. But it's worth noting that a lot of the people that did those things, they're, they're not here anymore. So I kind of see it as a new day. I love the new logo. And uh, I, I I think all signs are turning up in 2019. On my end over here, nodding my head. But yeah, I could not have said it better myself. Of course, before I let you go now, when can we uh, roughly expect to see that top 125 prospect list? What do we have coming out from 2080 that fans should be on the lookout for, whether it pertains to the Marlins or just the rest of the league and some some exciting stuff? I know you guys are producing some exciting content right now as spring training gets started. Absolutely. Yeah. So at 2080 Baseball, you can follow us at 2080Ball, 2080BALL on Twitter. Um, throughout February and March, we're going to be dropping our organizational lists. The Marlins list, we actually kicked off our lists on February 1st with the Marlins. So it was kind of fun. Um, at the conclusion of those, leading right up to minor league opening day, you're going to see our top 125. We kind of want to try something new. I, th I think a lot of outlets historically put those out in the winter and we're going to try and put it out right before opening day um, just to shake it up a little bit. Uh, we also have a ton of 2019 draft stuff that Marlins want to Marlins fans should want to follow because they're going to pick so high in the draft. Um, Nick Falaris and Bird Ranger do a great job on the amateur side. So you can find all this and more uh, 2080 baseball 2080 ball on Twitter. I'm Adam McInturf and you can find me at 2080 Adam. And something I want fans to note, too, is you guys provide some of the best video of any scout site, any scout service I've I've seen. And uh, that's something that is really worth following 2080 Ball on Twitter for to kind of get your own assessment of these guys. I know a lot of us egocentric baseball fans and writers like to have our own assessment. So 2080 <laughs> Baseball will give you the videos, too. If, if, you, if you want their assessment plus the videos, they got it for you. But Adam... Thank you. As always, it's a blast having you on. Of course, I'm going to follow up with you. You're going to, people got to look out for the podcast coming up after we get a couple months into the season. I want to get your assessment on some of the guys you've seen. And I'm always excited to have you on. Thank you again.
No, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Talk soon. soon.